Section 11 of A Commentary on the Epistle to the Romans by John Calvin, translated by Francis Sibson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Romans 8, verses 1 to 18. There is, therefore, now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh god sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit no condemnation the apostle having stated the unceasing contest which the pious have with their flesh resumes the subject of consolation already alluded to whose aid was so much required in their warfare he observes the pious notwithstanding they continue to be held under the power of sin and to be encompassed and besieged by it are yet exempted from the dominion of iniquity and from every curse of transgression provided they live not in the flesh but in the spirit the apostle unites the consideration of three subjects the imperfection of believers under which they always suffer the indulgence and kindness of god in granting its pardon and forgiveness and the regeneration of the spirit this is mentioned last to prevent every human being from boasting in a vain opinion as if he was delivered from the curse of the law while he continued in the meantime to indulge without care or fear in the gratification of his fleshly desires and appetites as the carnal man therefore flatters himself in vain if wholly unconcerned about the amendment of his life and manners he promises to escape unpunished under the pretext of this grace so the trembling consciences of the pious enjoy an invincible defence knowing for a certainty that during their continuance in christ they are out of all danger of condemnation we will now consider the meaning of the particular expressions to walk according to the spirit does not mean the complete and entire putting away of every carnal feeling so that the whole life of the pious savours of nothing except an heavenly perfection but implies the active and unceasing labour of believers in pursuing and mortifying their flesh that a zealous pursuit of piety may appear to reign in all their conduct such characters do not he asserts walk according to the flesh because wherever the fear of god flourishes in sincerity it deprives the flesh of its power and dominion though all its corruptions may not thus be abolished for the law of the spirit of life the meaning of the words must be carefully attended to if we are desirous to understand the following proof of his last opinion he improperly calls the law of the spirit the spirit of god which so sprinkles our souls with the blood of christ as not only to cleanse us from the blot and blemish of sin with respect to guilt but to sanctify and renew us into a state of real purity Paul adds life-giving, for the genitive case, according to Hebrew phraseology, is used as an epithet, and it hence follows that those who direct the attention of any one merely to the letter of the law condemn him to death. He contrasts with the law of the spirit of life the law of sin and death, which he calls the power of the flesh, and its necessary consequence, the tyranny of death. The law of God is placed, as it were, between both, which by teaching righteousness cannot bestow it, nay, rather binds us by still stronger bonds to the slavery of sin and death. The law of God, according to the opinion of Paul, condemns men because during their continuance under the obligation of the law they are oppressed by the bondage of sin and thus arraigned as guilty of death but the spirit of christ corrects the inordinate desires of the flesh abolishes by this means the law of sin in us and delivers at the same time 
from the guilt of death the pardon therefore some may object by which our sins are buried depends upon regeneration this is easily answered for paul is not assigning the cause but only the manner of our being released and freed from guilt the apostle asserts we do not obtain forgiveness by the mere external teaching and doctrine of the law but during our renewal by the spirit of god we are at the same time also justified by a gratuitous pardon that the curse of sin may no longer fall upon us the grace of regeneration therefore according to the opinion here stated by paul must never be separated from the imputation of righteousness i dare not with some commentators understand the law of sin and death to mean the law of god on account of the too great harshness of the expression for although by increasing sin the law may produce death yet paul hath designedly in a former passage avoided the displeasure of the jews by not using the word i by no means however agree with the opinion of those who explain the law of sin to mean the lust of the flesh as if paul said he had obtained a victory over it for in my opinion it will be sufficiently evident from a following passage that he speaks of gratuitous absolution which procures us rest and peace with god i do not choose with erasmus to translate it right or power for paul has not without consideration made allusion to the law of god for what the law could not do the apostle now follows with a more accurate polishing or illustration of the proof that the lord hath indeed justified us in christ by his gratuitous mercy which the law could not possibly accomplish we will carefully examine each part separately on account of the great importance of the opinion we may infer from the concluding clause who walk after the spirit and not after the flesh that the apostle is here treating of the gratuitous justification or pardon by which god reconciles us to himself for why this addition if paul intended to teach that we are furnished with powers for overcoming sin by the spirit of regeneration but it agrees very well with the context after paul has promised gratuitous remission of sins to the faithful that this doctrine should be restricted to those who join repentance to faith and do not abuse the mercy of god to the licentious indulgence of carnal desires we must carefully consider the cause assigned for the apostle teaches how the grace of christ can discharge and absolve us from guilt the expression what the law could not do undoubtedly means defect or inability as if paul had said that god had discovered a remedy by which the want of power on the part of the law was removed erasmus has translated the greek particle in that part which but as i consider the apostle to be here assigning a reason i have preferred to render it because and though this sense perhaps is not to be met with in classical greek writers yet since the apostle makes constant use of hebrew phrases my interpretation ought not to appear harsh for sensible readers will certainly grant the cause of the defect and ability of the law to be pointed out as we shall soon again state in our remarks on another passage erasmus deceived by the copulative conjunction which i conceive to have been added for the purpose of amplification has without any necessity from the context supplied the principal verb performed some may perhaps approve of the conjecture of the greek scholiast who joins the expression and for sin to the former part of the context in the following sense god sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin i have followed what i consider to be the genuine sense of paul i now direct my attention to the subject itself paul plainly affirms that our sins were atoned for by the death of christ because it was impossible for the law to bestow righteousness upon us sinners it hence follows that more is commanded in the law than we are able to perform for if our powers had been sufficient to fulfil the law it would have been vain to seek for a remedy by some other means 
on this account it is absurd to measure human powers by the precepts of the law as if god in demanding what was just regarded the extent quality and character of our powers in that it was weak paul hath expressly stated the defect of the law not to be any fault in itself but in the corruption of our flesh so that no person can consider the law to be in any respect dishonoured because its ability is proved or restrict the meaning of the apostle to ceremonial observances it must indeed be confessed that should any one fully satisfy the law of god he would be just in the presence of his creator he does not deny the power of the law to justify us with respect to doctrine since it contains a perfect rule of righteousness but the entire strength of the law decays or vanishes away because our flesh does not attain that righteousness the error or rather the madness of those who consider the ceremonies only to be deprived of the power of justifying is refuted by this passage since paul expressly places the fault in ourselves and declares that he finds nothing defective in the doctrine of the law besides the greek word used on this occasion does not imply a moderate share of weakness but entire impotence so as to signify that the law is not of the least weight in bestowing righteousness we are therefore you see entirely excluded from the righteousness of works and we must on this account fly to the righteousness of christ because we ourselves can have none this is particularly necessary to be known since we can never be clothed with christ's righteousness unless we are first certain that we have no righteousness of our own the word flesh is always used in the same sense and signifies ourselves the corruption of our nature therefore makes the law of god to be of no use to us because when it shows the path to life it does not pluck us back from the precipice although we are rushing into the very gulf of death god sending his own son he now shows the manner by which our heavenly father restores righteousness to us by his son namely because he condemned sin in the very flesh of christ he abolished as it were our offence by destroying the handwriting which kept us bound in the presence of god for the condemnation of sin has secured us righteousness since we are so absolved by destroying our guilt that god reputes us righteous but in the first place he expressly states christ to have been sent for the purpose of admonishing us that righteousness by no means resides in us since it must be sought from him and men confide in vain in their own merits who are righteous only according to the will and pleasure of another or they borrow righteousness from that expiatory sacrifice which christ fulfilled in his flesh paul says christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh because his flesh although stained with no spots had the appearance of being sinful since it sustained the punishment due to our sins and undoubtedly death exerted every part of its power upon the flesh of christ which was condemned to the sting of our last enemy secondly because it was the duty of our high priest to learn by his own experience what it is to afford assistance to the weak christ voluntarily underwent our infirmities that he might be more inclined to sympathy and in this part also a certain image of our own sinful nature appeared and for sin i said lately that some explain this concerning the cause end or design why god sent his son into the world namely to satisfy for sin chrysostom and many after him annex rather a harsh meaning to this passage that sin had been condemned by sin for having violently seized upon christ in an unjust manner and contrary to his deserts i grant the price of redemption was paid by a just and innocent person undergoing the punishment for sinners but i cannot be induced to think the name sin is taken here in any other sense than an expiatory victim which means both in hebrew and greek a sacrifice on which the curse is laid 
thus the same paul two corinthians five twenty one says for he hath made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of god in him the greek preposition generally translated for means here upon that sacrifice since sin was justly deprived of its power on account of the burden of sin which was laid upon christ that we might not now be condemned and subject to its dominion condemned means in a metaphorical sense those who lose their cause since god no longer receives among the number of guilty believers for whom absolution has been purchased by the sacrifice of christ the kingdom of sin under whose power we were oppressed has now been destroyed christ therefore received what was ours to himself that he might transfer his own to us for he took upon himself our curse and presented us with his own blessing paul adds here in the flesh to increase the certainty of our confidence when we see sin to have been conquered and destroyed in this very nature of ours for it hence follows that our nature has in reality become partaker of his victory a truth which he afterwards also declares that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled commentators who from this passage understand believers renewed by the spirit of christ to fulfil the law give a sense entirely different from that of paul for they during their sojourning in the world never make so great a progress that the righteousness of the law is complete and entire in the regenerate we must therefore necessarily refer this to the pardon of our sins for when the righteousness of christ is received and transferred to us the law is so satisfied that we are considered just for the perfection demanded by the law was exhibited in the flesh for this very reason that its rigorous exaction might have no more power to condemn us but because christ communicates his righteousness to none but those whom the spirit joins to himself by his own bond regeneration is again added lest christ should be considered to be the minister of sin as many violently rest what is delivered in scripture concerning the fatherly indulgence and tenderness of god to carnal wantonness and others maliciously calumniate this doctrine as if it extinguished all zealous endeavours after righteousness of life for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh but they that are after the spirit the things of the spirit for to be carnally minded is death but to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity against god for it is not subject to the law of god neither indeed can be so then they that are in the flesh cannot please god for they that are after the flesh paul adduces this distinction between the flesh and spirit not only to confirm by contrast what he had formerly stated that the grace of christ suits only those who being regenerated by the spirit earnestly study to walk in innocence of life but also to strengthen believers by consolation adapted to their case that they from a consciousness of their many infirmities might not faint or despond for hope of salvation might appear to be completely taken away from the whole race of mortals since paul has exempted from the curse none but those who lead a spiritual life for who can be found in this world so adorned with angelic purity as to be altogether unconnected with the flesh and have no business with this spring of corruption it was therefore necessary for the apostle to add a definition of his meaning when he spoke of being in the flesh and walking according to the flesh paul indeed does not use such accuracy of distinction at the commencement for as appears from the sequel his plan is to inspire believers with good hope though they yet continue bound to their flesh provided they do not give the reins to its desires but yield themselves up to the government of the holy spirit when he says they who are carnal do mind or meditate on the things of the flesh 
he proves that he does not regard as carnal such as aspire to heavenly righteousness but the mere devotees of the world the word translated mind proves all those to be excluded from the sons of god who devote themselves to the allurements of the flesh and apply their minds earnest zeal and labor to depraved desires he in the other part of the sentence encourages believers to entertain good hopes if they feel their affections raised upwards to meditate on righteousness by the influence of the spirit for wherever the spirit reigns there is a sign of the grace of god that bringeth salvation as the grace of god on the other hand has no existence where the kingdom of the flesh flourishes in its vigour and the spirit is extinct i here briefly repeat what i stated before that to be in the flesh or to walk according to the flesh and to be devoid of the gift of regeneration mean the same thing this is the character of all who continue as it is generally termed in a mere natural state for to be carnally minded erasmus translates it affection the vulgate prudence the meaning annexed to the greek by the apostle must have been the same with that of moses genesis six five imagination of the thoughts of the heart which comprises all the sentiments and feelings of the soul not only reason understanding intelligence and knowledge but the emotions affections and passions the translation thoughts of the flesh is better suited to this passage than either of the two already mentioned the illative particle for used by paul is merely confirmative and the question at issue is thus more strongly conceded because after he has given a short definition of being in the flesh he now subjoins the end namely death which awaits all its votaries he thus proves by contrast that all those who continue in the flesh are incapable of the grace of christ as they march forward to death and are carried thither during the whole course of their lives we learn from this remarkable passage that by the course of nature we rush headlong to death for of ourselves we conceive and imagine nothing but what ends in destruction he then shows by contrast that the spirit exerts its power provided any part of us advances forward to life since not one spark of life would rise from the flesh paul calls the mind of the spirit life because it quickens or leads to life by peace he according to the hebrew idiom means all the parts of happiness every action of the spirit of god in us tends to our happiness but it is inconclusive reasoning to attribute our salvation on this account to works since notwithstanding god commences and by forming us to his image finally finishes our salvation yet the only cause of it is the good pleasure of his will by which he makes us partakers in christ because the carnal mind he here proves his position that nothing indeed but death proceeds from the zealous earnest labours and pursuits of our flesh because they contend in hostile hatred with the will of god but the will of god is the rule of righteousness and everything as a necessary consequence which is at variance with this is unrighteous and at the same time deadly in vain can any one expect life when god is arrayed against him as an offended adversary for death which is the vengeance of his wrath immediately and of necessity follows the indignation of the most high the will of man also it is here worthy of observation is in all respects opposed to the divine will for we must necessarily be as much at variance with god as depravity of inclination disposition or conduct differs from rectitude and uprightness for it is not subject to the law of god he explains the last sentence by stating in what manner all the meditations of the flesh are at war with the will of god for it is impossible to find his will in any other place than where a revelation of it is given by himself 
for in the law he shows what affords him pleasure and on this account all who are desirous to examine in a right and proper manner the goodness of the state in which they stand with god try and measure all their plans counsels and pursuits by this standard for although no action takes place in the world without the secret providence of god overruling it to assign this as a pretext for saying that nothing happens without his approbation is insufferable blasphemy and this cavil is adduced at this period by some mad fanatics what folly is it to seek in some profound labyrinth for a distinction between right and wrong which the law hath publicly openly and distinctly placed before our eyes the lord has indeed as i have said his own hidden and secret counsel by which he orders all things according to his will but we ought to know that we are debarred from too curious an investigation of this subject since it cannot be comprehended by our finite understandings let this in the meantime continue fixed in our minds that god is pleased with nothing but righteousness nor can we form any proper judgment concerning our works except from the law in which he has truly declared what conduct and actions are agreeable or displeasing to his unerring will neither indeed can be behold the power of the freedom of the will which the sophists use every means to extol paul certainly here affirms in express terms what they detest with their whole heart that it is impossible for us to subject our affections to the obedience of the law they boast that the heart can be turned either way provided assistance be afforded by the inspiration of the spirit we have in our power according to them the free choice of good or evil if the spirit only supply us with aid to choose or refuse is our part they imagine also good motions by which we are prepared of our free will paul on the other hand declares our heart to be so swollen with hardness and unconquerable obstinacy that it would never by nature bend itself to submit to the yoke of god the apostle is not disputing concerning one or two of our affections but he uses an indefinite expression and casts into this bundle all the various emotions which arise from our hearts or understandings let the christian therefore remove far from his breast the heathen philosophy concerning the freedom of the will let every one acknowledge himself to be as he in reality is the slave of sin that being emancipated by the grace of christ he may be delivered from its power it is the height of folly to boast of any other freedom so then they that are in the flesh i have explained the adversative particle as a causal one and the reason is plain for the apostle concludes from what has been already stated that all those who give themselves up to the government of the lusts of the flesh are abominable to god paul hath confirmed by his preceding reasoning the opinion that all who walk not according to the spirit are alienated from christ because they are devoid of the heavenly life but ye are not in the flesh but in the spirit if so be that the spirit of god dwell in you now if any man have not the spirit of christ he is none of his and if christ be in you the body is dead because of sin but the spirit is life because of righteousness but if the spirit of him that raised up jesus from the dead dwell in you he that raised up christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you but ye paul applies hypothetically the general sentiment he maintains to the cases of those to whom his letter is written not merely to influence them more powerfully by directing his discourse peculiarly to themselves but to enable them from the definition just given to draw a certain conclusion that they belonged to the number of those who have been delivered by christ from the curse of the law at the same time however paul exhorts them to newness of life by explaining the power of god in the elect and the fruits he produces if so be that the spirit of god dwells in you 
he subjoins suitably to his purpose this correction of his hypothesis to rouse them to a more close self-examination that they may not make a vain pretence to the name of christ and the most certain and unerring sign and mark by which the sons of god are distinguished from the children of the world is their regeneration by the spirit of god to innocence and holiness his object does not appear to be so much the correcting of hypocrisy as the supplying of a subject for glorying against the preposterous and rash zealots of the law who paid more regard to the dead letter than the internal power of the spirit which quickens and animates the law we are moreover taught by this passage that paul by the word spirit had not in the former part of this epistle meant the mind or understanding which the advocates of free will denominate the superior part of the soul but the gift of the comforter which is bestowed by heaven for according to his own explanation those are spiritual whom god governs by his own spirit and not such as obey reason of their own proper influence nor are they said to be according to the spirit because they are filled with god's spirit for none ever yet enjoyed that blessing but because they have him dwelling in them although they still feel some of the remains of the flesh in their own nature and the spirit cannot dwell in believers without taking possession of the superior faculties for man is so denominated it must be observed from reason the principal part of his character now if any man have not the spirit of christ he is none of his paul by this addition proves the necessity laid on christians to deny and forsake the flesh the kingdom of the spirit is the destruction and extinction of the flesh those in whom the spirit has not established his kingdom do not belong to christ therefore the slaves of the flesh are not christians christ by being separated from his spirit is made to resemble a dead image or a corpse we must always remember the advice of the apostle that the gratuitous forgiveness of sins cannot be disjoined from regeneration for christ would thus as it were be torn in pieces if this be true it is astonishing to find the enemies of the gospel accusing us of arrogance because we have the boldness to avow that the spirit of christ dwells in us believers for without controversy we must either deny christ or acknowledge we become christians by his spirit it is indeed horrible to hear that men have so departed from the word of god as not only to boast of their being christians without the spirit of god but also to laugh at others for believing in his operation and this is the philosophy of the roman catholics our readers may here observe the spirit to be indifferently applied on some occasions to god the father and on others to christ because all his fullness is poured out on christ as our mediator and head that each of us believers may receive his own portion descending from this fountain of grace the same spirit is also common to the father and the son since they have one essence and the same eternal deity because however we have no communication with god but by christ the apostle wisely descends from the father who appears to be at a greater distance to christ but if christ be in you he now applies to christ what he had before ascribed to the spirit signifying the manner by which christ dwells in us for as by the spirit he consecrates us for temples to himself so he resides in us by the same comforter he more distinctly also explains what we had already alluded to that the sons of god are not reckoned spiritual from a full and entire perfection but only on account of the newness of life which has commenced its existence in their persons he then anticipates a doubt which might perplex and cause us uneasiness for although the spirit occupies one part of us yet another is still kept under the influence of death he answers the power of quickening exists in the spirit of christ which is able to absorb our mortality 
and he hence infers the necessity of our waiting with patience until the remains of sin shall be entirely destroyed. The word spirit, as we have already stated, does not mean our soul, but the spirit of regeneration, which Paul calls life, not only because he lives and flourishes in us, but quickens us by his lively power until he destroys our mortal flesh and at last perfectly renews our nature. By the word body, on the contrary, is meant the more gross mass, not yet purified by the Spirit of God from earthly pollutions, which feel and perceive nothing but grossness, for otherwise it would be absurd to attribute to the body the fault and blame of sin. Again, so far as the soul from being life that it does not possess life in itself, Paul means, though sin condemns us to death according to the extent of the remains of the vicious character of our nature from Adam, yet the Spirit obtains the victory. No obstacle is presented to this conquest because the first-fruits of the Spirit have only been bestowed upon us, because the first-fruits of the Spirit have only been bestowed upon us, for even one spark from the Comforter is the seed of life. But if the Spirit... He confirms the last passage from the efficient cause in the following manner. If the power of the Spirit of God raised up Christ from the dead, and the Spirit retains eternal power, he will also exert the same in believers... He takes it for granted that in Christ's person a testimony had been exhibited of power, which extends to the whole body of the church. He attributes to God a life-giving spirit by making him the author of the resurrection. He that raised. He describes God by a circumlocution, which suited his present purpose better than calling him simply by name. In the same way he ascribes to the Father the glory of Christ being raised from the dead, for this afforded a stronger proof of his proposition than by attributing the resurrection to Christ himself. For the objection might be formed, Christ was able to raise himself by that power which is entirely denied to all mankind. But when he says God raised up Christ by his Spirit, which he likewise communicated to you, no objection can be formed against it, since he has thus given us a sure hope of the resurrection." nor does this derogate the least from the truth of the following passage, John 10.18, I have power to lay down my life, and I have power to take it again. Christ certainly rose from the dead of himself, and by his own power, but as he usually ascribes to the Father whatever divine power he possesses, so the Apostle properly transferred to the Father what was in Christ, chiefly his own proper work. He moreover denominates mortal bodies, whatever yet remains in us subject to death, as he generally applies this name to our grosser part. Hence we conclude the Apostle is not speaking of the last resurrection, which will take place in a moment, but of the continued operation of the Spirit, by which he mortifies by degrees the remains of the flesh, and renews in us a heavenly life. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh, for if ye live after the flesh ye shall die, but if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Therefore, brethren, it is the conclusion of the preceding remarks that if we must renounce the flesh, we ought to refrain from its indulgence. If again the Spirit ought to reign in us, it is absurd not to depend upon his beck and will. One part of the antithesis is wanting in the Apostle, namely that we are debtors to the Spirit, but there is no obscurity in the sense. This conclusion has the force of exhortation, as Paul is always in the habit of drawing his exhortation from his doctrine. Thus, Ephesians 4.30, he admonishes us not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God by which we are sealed to the day of redemption. Thus, Galatians 5.25, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. 
this takes place when we renounce carnal desires that we may devote ourselves to the righteousness of god as to a state of active obedience such is the reasoning which a believer must adopt and not as some blasphemers are accustomed to do speak foolishly and babble about spending a life of idleness and inactivity because we have nothing in our own power by adopting such a line of conduct we wage war as it were with god since by contempt and negligence we extinguish his grace offered for our acceptance for if you live after the flesh a threatening is added for the purpose of removing from among them with greater keenness all slothfulness and this affords a good refutation of those who glory in the righteousness of faith without the spirit of christ their own conscience however sufficiently convicts them since there is no confidence in god where there is no love of righteousness it is indeed true that we are justified in christ by the alone mercy of god but it is equally true and certain that all who are justified are called by the lord to live worthy of their vocation let believers therefore hence learn to embrace christ not only for justification but sanctification as he is given for both purposes that they may not tear their redeemer by a mutilated faith of their own invention but if ye through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body he thus moderates his opinion that the minds of the pious may not become dejected who are still conscious to themselves of much infirmity for although we are subject to sin he promises us life provided we pursue with zeal our exertions for mortifying the flesh for he does not exactly require the death of the flesh but only commands us to use our utmost efforts in subduing its lusts for as many as are led by the spirit of god this affords a proof of the preceding opinion for all according to his doctrine are finally reckoned the sons of god who are regulated by his spirit since god acknowledges his own by this mark the vain boasting of hypocrites is thus destroyed who usurp the title without the reality and the faithful are roused to an undoubted confidence of their salvation to conclude the whole by a syllogism all who are led by the spirit of god are sons of god all the sons of god are the heirs of eternal life all who are led by the spirit of god are certain heirs of eternal life the minor premise or assumption is omitted because its truth cannot be doubted but it is proper to observe that the action of the spirit is various for that is universal by which all creatures are supported and move there are also peculiar and various actions of the spirit in men but paul means sanctification in this passage with which the lord honours only his elect while he sets them apart to himself as sons for ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear but ye have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry abba father the spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of god and if children then heirs heirs of god and joint heirs with christ if so be that we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together for i reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us paul now confirms that certainty of confidence in which he lately ordered believers to rest from the special effect of the spirit for he is not given to toss us to and fro with trembling and uncertainty or to torment us with perplexity and anxiety but rather to allay all our perturbations to settle our minds in a state of tranquillity and rouse us to an assured free and unrestrained calling upon god he therefore not only pursues the argument already alluded to but insists more extensively on the branch of the subject which he had joined at the same time with this concerning god's fatherly indulgence by which he pardons his people the weakness of the flesh and the sins to which they are yet liable he instructs us that the spirit of adoption gives us an assured belief of his fatherly kindness 
since he would never inspire us with confidence in our prayers unless he first sealed a gratuitous pardon and to illustrate this more fully he speaks of a double spirit he calls one the spirit of a legal bondage derived from the prohibitions of the commandments the other of evangelical adoption conferred upon us by christ jesus he says the first was formerly given for fear the last is at present bestowed upon us for confidence and security the certainty of our salvation which he wishes to confirm evidently appears with greater clearness from such a comparison of contraries the author of the epistle to the hebrews uses the same comparison hebrews twelve eighteen when he says we have not come to mount sinai where all things were so dreadful that the people dismayed as if by the present denunciation of death entreated that not a word should be addressed to them and moses according to his own confession felt great fear but we have come to zion the mount of the lord to jerusalem the heavenly city of the living god where is jesus the mediator of the new covenant the adverb again leads us to compare here the law with the gospel for the son of god brought us this inestimable blessing by his advent that we should no longer be bound by the servile condition of the law we must not hence infer either that none were endowed with the spirit of adoption before christ's coming or that all who had received the law were slaves not sons for paul rather compares the ministry of the law with the dispensation of the gospel than persons with persons i grant indeed that believers are admonished how much more liberally god has now acted with them than he formerly did with the fathers under the old testament he has however regard unto the external dispensation in which respect only we surpass them for although the faith of abraham moses and david was more excellent than ours yet so far as god kept them to all appearance under a schoolmaster they had not attained the liberty now disclosed to us under the gospel we must at the same time observe that an antithesis is designedly kept up on account of the false apostles between the disciples of the letter of the law and believers whom christ their heavenly master not only addresses with the sound of his mouth but powerfully teaches internally by his spirit and although the covenant of grace is contained in the law yet paul removes it from his consideration in this comparison because in opposing the mosaic dispensation to the gospel of christ he regards only what was peculiar to the law prohibition and command and the restraining of transgressors by the denunciation of death and he thus assigns the law that quality by which it is distinguished from the gospel or if any prefers the following explanation he proposes the mere law so far as god covenants with us in it by having respect to our works the pious among the jewish people both during and after the promulgation of the law were illuminated by the same spirit of faith and the hope of a heavenly inheritance was sealed upon their hearts of which the spirit was the earnest and seal the only difference is that the spirit was poured out in the kingdom of christ in a more bountiful manner and with a larger and more liberal hand if you regard the dispensation of the doctrine of truth salvation will then first seem to have been certainly manifested when christ was exhibited in the flesh so great was the obscurity in which all things were involved in the old testament when compared with the perspicuity of the new finally the law if considered in itself can bind men devoted to nothing but a wretched slavery by the fear of death because it promises no good but upon condition and threatens death against all transgressors wherefore as under the law it was a spirit of bondage which oppressed the conscience with fear so under the gospel it is the spirit of adoption which gladdens our hearts with the testimony of our salvation observe also that fear is joined with slavery because the law must necessarily harass and torment the mind with miserable restlessness while it exercises its dominion 
on this account there is no other remedy for appeasing the mind than when god forgives our sins and as a father is indulgent to his children by whom we cry he therefore changed the person that he might express the common lot of all the saints as if he had said you have received the spirit by which you and the rest of all us believers cry abba father the imitation of the word used by children to parents is very emphatic because he pronounces the name of father in the persons of the faithful doubling the appellation by different words makes the language more emphatic for paul intimates that the mercy of god was now so published through the whole world that his name was indiscriminately invoked in all languages as augustine observes paul therefore wished to express the harmony among all nations hence it follows that the greek at present differs nothing from the jew since they are united one with the other the prophet isaiah nineteen eighteen speaks in a different manner when he says the language of canaan shall be common to all people for he has not respect to an external idiom but to the harmony of the heart in worshipping god and the same simple zeal in professing his true and pure worship crying is used to express confidence as if he had said we do not pray in a doubtful manner but lift up without fear our loud voice to heaven the faithful also called upon god the father in the law but not with such a freedom of confidence since the veil removed them far from the sanctuary but now when an entrance has been opened to us by the blood of christ we may boast in a familiar manner and with freedom of expression that we are the sons of god hence this crying arises finally the prophecy of hosea is thus fulfilled hosea two twenty three i will say unto them you are my people and they will in turn answer thou art our god for our freedom in prayer is greater as the promise is more full and open for the spirit himself he does not simply state that the spirit of god is a witness to our spirit but he uses a compound verb signifying to bear witness together with another paul means the spirit of god affords us such a testimony that our spirit can determine the adoption of god to be firm and unshaken when he is our leader and master for our mind would not of its own accord dictate this faith to us unless the testimony of the spirit preceded it this is also an explanation of the following sentence for while the spirit testifies to us that we are the children of god he at the same time infuses this confidence into our minds that we dare invoke god the father and certainly since the confidence of the heart alone can open our mouth unless the spirit bears testimony to our hearts concerning the fatherly love of god our tongues will continue mute in conceiving and uttering praises for this must always be maintained as a principle that we can no otherwise properly pray to god but by invoking the father with our mouth and we must be certainly persuaded and assured in our minds that he stands related to us in his fatherly character the other position that our faith can be proved only by invoking god corresponds with this principle paul therefore not without reason recalls us to this examination and shows that the serious faith of every believer will then be made manifest when he and all who receive the promises of grace devote themselves to prayer and the trifling subtleties of the sophists receive a powerful refutation from this passage concerning moral conjecture which is nothing else but uncertainty and anxiety of mind nay rather wavering and hallucination paul at the same time answers their objection they ask how a man can fully know the will of god this however is not the certainty of the human capacity but the testimony of the spirit of god as the apostle treats more fully in his first epistle to the corinthians where we must seek for a more complete exposition of this passage the opinion therefore is undoubtedly proved that none can be termed a son of god who does not acknowledge himself to be such 
this is termed knowledge by John, 1 John 5, 19 and 20, for the purpose of showing its certainty, but if sons. He proves, by an argument derived from such circumstances as are connected with or follow from his former observations, that salvation consists in having God for our Father, an inheritance is destined for sons when therefore god has adopted us for his children he has also destined an inheritance for us he then hints what such an inheritance this is namely a heavenly and on this account incorruptible and eternal and such as has been manifested in christ all uncertainty is removed by this manifestation the excellence of the inheritance which we partake with the only begotten son of god is also increased the design of paul as the following context will prove is to extol the splendour of the promised inheritance that being content with its blessings we may despise with bravery the allurements of the world and bear with patience all the troubles which may befall us in our passage through life if we suffer with him various are the interpretations of this passage but i give the preference to the following we are fellow heirs with christ provided we follow him in the same path which he pursued for the purpose of seeing our inheritance and because he made mention of christ he therefore wished to pass on to this exhortation by this climax as if the inheritance of god is ours on account of our being adopted by his grace among his sons and to remove all doubt the possession of heaven is now conferred on christ with whom we are partakers our redeemer went to that inheritance by the cross and we must therefore go by the same means nor is there any cause for dreading what some fear lest paul ascribe our labours as the cause of eternal glory for this manner of speaking is usual in scripture but he points out the order which is followed by the lord in bestowing upon us salvation rather than its cause he has in the former part of this epistle sufficiently advocated the gratuitous mercy of god against the merit of works now while he exhorts us to patience he does not dispute concerning the cause whence salvation may come to us but the manner by which god governs his own people for i certainly reckon although i do not disapprove of the interpretation as foolish given by those who consider this sentence introduced as a corrective yet i prefer considering it as an enlarging of the exhortation by way of anticipating an objection we need not be troubled such is the sense of the passage if we have to pass to the glory of heaven through manifold afflictions since these when compared with the greatness of the glory of another world are of the very slightest moment future glory means eternal and the afflictions of the world such as suddenly pass away this passage therefore was evidently not well understood by the schoolmen who derived from it their frivolous distinction of congruity and condignity for the apostle is not comparing the dignity of each but he lightens the weight of the cross by comparing it with the greatness of glory for the very purpose of strengthening the minds of the faithful by patience. End of section 11